Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe I was on the air just a day ago. And what do you know, a day later, I'm back on the air with you guys. But hey, there's nothing wrong with being on the air back-to-back days. For a while, when I was first doing all this, it seemed like I was on the air on an everyday basis. But as time goes along, sometimes uh, the schedule changes, but it doesn't mean that um, adjustments can be made to where podcasting can still be efficient, effective, and most important of all, relevant to you all, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners, whom I appreciate ever so much for taking the time to listen, and not just to listen, but to get the word out to those whom are interested in wanting to not only listen to podcast sessions, but to also go about doing their own um, side hobby. And it is a great side hobby, to say the least. Uh, As I've said probably before, that I have my wife and my dad to thank uh, for getting me to do this. So if you know of somebody out there who has inspired you to do something such as podcasting, take them up on their offer, because it is uh, well worth the while. So here we are again discussing uh, Wedding of the Waters, uh, Peter L. Bernstein's novel on the Erie Canal and the making of a great nation. When I was with you all yesterday, we ended with uh, the Embargo Act of 1807, which really put a huge dent in the American economy. Uh, as As we all know, the embargo wasn't just so much a halt on trade, It was also a deterrent to stop uh, the act of impressment by the British on American sailors, that is, capturing American sailors and forcing them against their own will to fight alongside the British due to a shortage of um, British British sailors. Well, in the end, the embargo actually did more harm to the Americans than it did to the British and the French. Goods uh, dried up, um, exports and imports were greatly impacted, Uh, economies, most notably in New England, were destroyed uh, to the point where it would be another two years before the act itself was repealed. So, our lead-off bonus question in tonight's uh, discussion, and here we are again in part two of um, this book called The Action Begins, you know, now that this embargo went into effect, and then uh, knowing how long it's going to take to get out of it, how is this impacting New Yorkers? Well, the thought of even going before Congress, or let alone getting Thomas Jefferson himself to even state to Congress what should be considered um, an internal improvement, is a uh, far-fetched cry, because the embargo alone has pretty much diminished all hopes of any uh, surplus money, federal surplus money that is coming into New York, not just into the city, but to the state alone for uh, getting uh, the canal uh, started. So, our leadoff bonus question is the following, and it does pertain to the Embargo Act of 1807. Given the trade fallout involving the Embargo Act, which, when would New Yorkers restart their campaign for the canal waterway? It was about a year after Jefferson leaves office. Jefferson leaves office in March of 1809, and it's a year later in 1810, the start of a new um, decade in the 19th century being the second decade. It's in that year that a fellow by the name of Thomas Eddy, who was a former director to the Western Inland Lock Navigation Company, 
goes about proposing a move to extend the current system westward with with the canal from the Mohawk Valley's tributaries, which are streams of different, uh, or should I say different waterway streams that flow into uh, one main uh, river. So he's proposing a move to extend the current system westward with the canal from the Mohawk Valley's tributaries all the way to the Seneca River being 75 miles. Why is he proposing this? Well, if by doing so, it's more than just saying, hey, we need a canal, but how about toll revenue? You know, revenue is always great because, uh, you know, in order to uh, be able to operate anything, you got to have revenue. So by extending this uh, waterway, um, he knows that it will increase uh, revenue, not just going forward in the present moment, but in the future. But Unfortunately, this case really goes nowhere, or let alone um, an argument. However, uh, Thomas Eddy is not completely defeated, which is a significant blessing. How so? Well, in March of 1810, Mr. Eddy proposed having state legislators appoint commissioners whom would go about exploring the westernmost parts or areas, I should say, of New York State. And when I say the westernmost parts of the state, I'm thinking of uh, Buffalo, Rochester. Um, I'm thinking about, um, what is it, uh, the Genesee Valley, um, the areas that are primarily west of the Finger Lakes region. But most notably, and even Niagara Falls, let's put it that way. So, did anybody before Mr. Eddy propose to the state legislature in New York about getting commissioners to go out, go out and actually explore for themselves what is doable and what isn't in regards to actually making this canal a grand reality. No. What had happened in the past was that um, there had been commissions and then there had been private uh, companies. While all of them may have served a purpose, we're going to find out here shortly that... Um, in order for the Erie Canal to eventually become a true reality, we're going to have to reinvent the way we were thinking before and, and re-shift um, our thinking to a new uh, platform. So, luckily for Mr. Eddy, he has got a, a longtime friend of his who is in the uh, New York State Legislature being Senator Jonas Platt. Now, at first, Mr. Platt has some um, differences, but it doesn't take long for Mr. Platt to come along and support his friend's um, proposal in having commissioners report to the legislature. How so? Well, you know, when I think of commissions, I usually think of independent investigative bodies or just independent um, governing boards who do their own work. They report their findings but they leave it at that. Uh, they leave it up for another board to decide on how to uh, go about um, implementing the um, suggested proposals. What's different, what's going to be different here is that if you have commissioners being appointed by the legislature, they're going to do some real good nitty-gritty work that will perhaps um, prove to be of uh, relevant use and also say to the legislature up front, hey, look, 
we may not serve in the actual um, legislative body, but we went out there. We saw what's feasible. And even though we may have seen a few things that might still have questions, we are still willing to listen to what you all have to say, and perhaps we can work together, reach some compromises, and and uh, go forward with what what all parties have at stake so that uh, in the end the, the results are relevant and that progress on constructing an actual canal is doable. So... For Jonas Platt, he wanted the state of New York to finance the project. What project? The Erie Canal. In other words, Mr. Platt already is, he already has a sense in mind, or let alone a direction in mind, knowing that, okay, we've just went through a terrible embargo where trade um suffered some disastrous consequences. Uh, we thought that the British and the French would learn their lessons with not impressing American sailors, but it turns out that the American economy is in far more shambles than the French and the British's um, state of um, economic uh, union. So by the state of New York financing the project, it will everyone in the state alone will have a greater say on this, but the legislature as a whole uh, will be able to work together uh, versus having power be placed in the hands of private corporations who are only looking after their own personal interests. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a private corporation, but sometimes even private companies, if they claim to say, well, we'll finance this project for X amount of money, it doesn't mean that the project itself is going to go smoothly. You know, there, there can be a lot of talk and no action. There could be talk and action, but the end results may not always um, turn out to be what uh, those below were hoping for all along. So it's a lot of what, what you call a double-edged sword. Now, speaking of commission, there will be seven... Um, this commission will be comprised of seven commissioners total. It's going to be made up of uh, four men who are Federalists and then three who are Republicans, or perhaps I should say um, either Anti-Federalists or Jeffersonian Republicans. Well, I think it's good to have a, um, a, a split uh, body. Of course, many of you are probably thinking, well, gee, if you've got three who are Anti-Federalists, are they going to get along with the four who are Federalists? Well, just because you're a Federalist and just because someone else is anti-Federalist, it doesn't mean that you can't get along on some things. But I will admit, and history has told us, that even in the early years of our Republic's existence, there were um, many unpleasantries between Federalist and anti-Federalist uh, congressional leaders. There was uh, one um, incident where a congressman from uh, Connecticut, I believe, um, attacked... Um, a congressman from another party, and they engaged in a brawl, basically, is, is what happened. Uh, Federalists and anti-Federalists in, er, in the early days of the Republic's existence did engage in a lot of unpleasantries. You know, is, has anything really changed in over, what, um, 230-some years? I don't know how much has changed, but I do know, of course, in today's time, uh, the state of Washington, or, or what I should say, the, the political state of um, politics in Washington, D.C., 
is far more tense than it was um, when our forefathers um, first established our um, our uh, nation's democracy. That's a whole other topic for another uh, discussion, but back to our main focal point here. The four men uh, who are Federalists that are appointed commissioners are Governor Morris, who was a well-known statesman who owned multiple properties along the Genesee River Valley region, to Stephen Van Rensselaer, who happens to be New York's largest landowner. And then Thomas Eddy himself is a part of the uh, commission, who's a Federalist. And then you have a fellow named William North, who is an American Revolution um, veteran. Um, there is a college in New York State, not far from Albany, and I think there is a town as well referred to as uh, Rensselaer. But the college is known as RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So I think it's fair to say that that's probably named after uh, after someone in the Rensselaer family, but it could be possible that it might be named after Mr. Stephen Van Rensselaer. Now, as for the Anti-Federalists, you have DeWitt Clinton, along with his cousin being the surveyor, General Simeon DeWitt, to Congressman Peter Porter, whom had property interests in western New York. Western New York being like, you know, Buffalo, the Niagara Falls area. Now, and yesterday's podcast, I mentioned how we were going to be discussing a great deal about DeWitt Clinton, and we will be doing that here shortly. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, now, aren't the Federalists the ones who advocate a strong central government? Yes. But at the same time, aren't the Anti-Federalists the ones who are against a strong central government? Yes. But is it fair to say that if one is an Anti-Federalist, that they can still turn to Federalists for support based upon the matter that's at stake? Absolutely. It all comes down to people willing to work together and putting aside political ideologies. And I must say that that's something that a lot of politicians in today's modern world have forgotten, even in the most unpleasant of circumstances. Another bonus question is the following. I mentioned it briefly um, yesterday. I'll mention it again. And it might be mentioned again in other podcast sessions down the road. But here it is. Would sectional biases continue to interfere with getting internal improvement amendments passed through Congress? Yes. Sectional biases, north, south. Um, the northerners have, a, um, have an economy that's based upon manufacturing, uh, mercantile. Uh, down south is uh, agrarian. Uh, plantation-based economy. If you're down south, I think the, th the thought of wanting to support a canal project that's only going to benefit northerners really has no uh, meaning to to someone in South, south or North Carolina. Um, whereas in, up north, it's going to have far more meaning because for one, it's uh, it, it, the canal itself will link the Atlantic Ocean to the inland um, waterways, of, especially of New York State, but it will go all the way past uh, Buffalo into um, markets like Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and then into Illinois. And not just the goods going in that direction, but obviously um, immigrants going there to populate those uh, territories. Well, of course, Ohio is already a state by this time, but we're talking about Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois, and Wisconsin those um, territories that are still part of the uh, Northwest Ordinance from 1787. 
So yes, sectional biases are going to continue to interfere. And the greater the division itself there was over transportation project funding, the more likely New York herself will ha would have to fend for her own in presenting the canal project. So in other words, you know, if you're a, a congressional representative from New York or let alone a U.S. senator from what would eventually be called the Empire State, yes, you can uh, propose any kind of amendment you would like. You can propose them until you're blue in the face. But who's to say that... Um, that people around you, not just so much from the South, but say from other mid-Atlantic or New England states might have some hesitations. I don't know how much so in New England, but uh, the bottom line is hesitations can be anywhere. So, yes, New York right now is feeling the um, after effects, not just so much from the embargo of 1807, but all the sectional tension. So Thomas Eddy and Jonas Platt... If they want to go forward and getting someone to take center stage to make a huge case, who do they need to turn to? Mr. DeWitt Clinton. So here we go, folks. I told you yesterday we would learn about DeWitt Clinton in the next podcast, and I'm delivering that promise for you all as I speak. So, what do we know about Mr. DeWitt Clinton, or let alone I should ask you all, my podcast listeners, what is there to know about DeWitt Clinton? Well, he was born in 1769. He, that means he would have been born a, one year before the Boston Massacre of March 5th, 1770. And to think he was born four years after Parliament passed that infamous Stamp Act. Taxation without representation. Of course, as we all know, it was repealed, but but just when we thought we had uh, taken a nice sigh of relief from, um, from uh, what do you call it, improper legislation being passed without our consent, we all know that Parliament found something else to uh, get us on. But, um, but yes, hard to believe that Mr. DeWitt Clinton was born a year before the Boston Massacre, but it's also fair to say that he was born right around the time that the storm was brewing to where we would eventually declare our separation from England. He happens to be the nephew of Mr. George Clinton, whom served multiple terms as New York's governor. And he was first elected to the New York State Legislature in 1798. And think about it, in 1798, John Adams is into his second year as president. And um, DeWitt Clinton briefly served in the U.S. Senate, but one thing that I would say he is most accomplished for in terms of his political career was that he served a total of 10 one-year terms as New York City's mayor, ranging from 1803 to 1807, 1808 to 1810, and 1811 to 1815. And it is fair to uh, point out that Mr. Clinton is very big into history. Well, if you're going to be a huge advocate and be the leading force behind canal support, wouldn't it be fair to say that you should have knowledge on um, history of canals in terms of canal success from countries like England and France, but also have a history of your state's geography? And we'll get to that here soon, but the bottom line is it's one thing to have an appreciation for history, but if you really want to make a case for this canal, you've really got it take your A-game to another uh, level, perhaps a level that has not been seen before. 
So when Henry, when um, DeWitt Clinton becomes mayor of New York City, New York City is experiencing a boom. It surpasses Philadelphia as the nation's largest exporter and importer of goods, and it is home to roughly 90,000 people. Of course, that doesn't come anywhere close to uh, what the population is of New York City now. It's um, somewhere in the millions. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what number it is, but it's, uh, but of course in 1810, 90,000 people, that's a lot of people living in New York City at the start of the 19th century. But from 1810 onward, New York City and New York State's populations are increasing at rapid rate, at rapid uh, paces. So, as for the seven-member um, commission assignments, we've mentioned the names of the men, but let's find out about their assignments. What is Thomas Eddy going to be assigned to doing? He's going to be the secretary and the treasurer. Mr. DeWitt Clinton, his cousin Simeon DeWitt, and William North would venture by boat up the Mohawk and continue westward by water with, with their uh, primary desti destination of arriving to Geneva on Seneca Lake. And um, I'm very familiar with Geneva. Uh, when my wife and I went to the Finger Lakes uh, four years ago, um, we stayed in uh, Penyan, which is on the northern end of Keuka Lake, out of all uh, 11 Finger Lakes, uh, Kiuka is the only one that's uh, crooked. So <laughs> Kiuka gets its name as being uh, the Bent Lake, or should I say, uh, the Crooked Lake. Or, or also, I believe, uh, Canoe Landing as well. But um, as for uh, Seneca Lake, that is um, just, um, it, it borders Kiuka Lake, and uh, Seneca, uh, Geneva is on the northern end of Seneca Lake, and uh, and if those of you who are familiar with Watkins Glen, that's on the southern end of uh, Seneca Lake. Uh, but Geneva, that's a nice um, town, um, and I do recommend visiting there. So uh, as for uh, Peter Porter, he will meet up with the group once arriving into Buffalo. And as for um, Governor Morris and Van Rensselaer, or should I say Stephen Van Rensselaer, they will navigate New York State by land all the way to Lake Erie. Wow, so all of these men have um, assignments. It's probably a good thing maybe they're split up. If they were all together, you never know what could happen. Worst case scenario, somebody could die, um, let alone somebody get sick. I mean, yes, even by splitting up, there are chances that some things could go wrong. But I will tell you this. This is something... This is a good example right here of something that had not been done before from previous commissions or let alone private corporations. All they did was talk about what they wanted to achieve, but if you really want to achieve constructing the Erie Canal, if there's, you know, there are many factors to make the, this reality a dream come true, but one of them is to actually go out and explore, physically explore the areas. Of course, I should admit that uh, Mr. Cadwallader Colden, back in 1724, he explored the Mohawk Valley area. But, um, but of course, a lot has changed since 1724. Now, here's another bonus question for you all. Uh, what did the Commission of 1800 achieve that was different from years past? 
I may have mentioned it already a moment ago, but how about I add a little bit more to this question? Well, the Commission of 1810 didn't rely on private sponsorship, but instead relied on government from within the confines of New York State. In other words, they didn't have to rely on an outside uh, company to do the work for them. They actually got people who lived in New York State. The men I just mentioned a moment ago, they all hailed from New York. So they know, if they haven't been around the whole state, they've been around most of the state where they're either from or where they have ventured into that they have not been before. But they know enough about the layout of the land to at least know, hey, what is feasible, what isn't. But even if there is something that's not feasible, there can be some way to modify the existing um, situation. I should point out something, too, real quick, that um, about uh, 12 years ago, my wife and I, we were planning our um, five-year anniversary vacation trip to Lake Placid, New York, which we went back in uh, June of 2010. I, was, um, I had subscribed to Adirondack Life at the time, and I was reading um, an article in uh, Letters to the Editor, and... <laughs> The uh, person who wrote this article was originally from uh, Saranac Lake, which is just on the outskirts of Lake Placid up in the uh, High Peaks region of the park. He was currently residing in New York City. And of course, when we all tend to think of New York, we think of New York City. I don't know if that's a bad thing, but that probably is what comes to most people's minds. After all, New York City and New York State are, it is safe to say, would be considered two separate worlds. But um, this gentleman said that one morning he decided he wanted to test um, his co-worker's knowledge about the state. And the question was the following. Where are the Adirondacks located in New York? And, and if anybody got the question right, they would get $20. Well, someone said the following. Um... I didn't know that one person literally said the following. I didn't know New York State went past Albany, being the state capital. Nobody got the question right. So the gentleman basically said in the end that I ended up keeping the $20 for myself, and I realized that I was probably $20 richer than the rest of my coworkers because I knew more about the state of New York than they did alone. So it should just be a reminder that... Um, that sometimes it's easy to forget that, um, that um, let's say, for example, in living in New York, that we must distinguish between the two, but also realize that, um, that New York City is not confined to just the city alone. There is a state. And no matter where you live in New York State, it is big. I mean, I've been there, what, at least I've been to New York State three times in the last four years. And um, no matter where you go, it is big. Uh, I know from uh, where my wife and I went over the summer, this past summer being the Thousand Islands region in the northern part of the state, from there to Niagara Falls, it's about four and a half hours. Um, and then from, um, I know from uh, Buffalo to Niagara Falls, I know that's about 20 miles. That doesn't seem a long distance, but the bottom line is it, you should know your distance and also pay attention to maps as much as possible because if you don't, then it's very easy to lose hindsight of where places are located from point A to point B. And believe me, the surveyors and the, and the commissioners, they need their maps. They need to know how to go about um, 
constructing this canal one day because, you know, we're not just going to take shovels and start digging trails and saying, okay, here's our trail, here comes the water. That's not how it works. So, as for the bonus question about what the Commission of 1810 achieved, they didn't rely on private sponsorship. They relied on the government from within the confines of the state. The Erie Canal Project plan would evolve into something more grand versus straight talk. In other words, saying stuff but doing nothing. Now, in early July of 1810, DeWitt Clinton and Thomas Eddy leave New York City for Albany on Robert Fulton's steamboat, the Clermont, which I mentioned yesterday. And the Clermont is has been very successful. It's already been in business for three years. It got it. It was first introduced in 1807. The Clermont um, provides round trip service from uh, New York City to Albany and vice versa. And that round trip is 150 miles, with the cost at seven dollars a fare. Uh, now seven dollars being round trip. Now that's a that's a lot of money right there. But on the other hand, let's say you didn't want to go the whole round-trip distance, how much would it cost? Well, let's say you're only going 20 miles from New York City to your uh, final point of destination. That's going to cost you about a dollar. So basically, it's a dollar for every 20 miles. But for 150 miles, we're looking at $7 round-trip. Now, the journey that the commissioners would t took would help lay the foundation for what was to come in securing the nation's future. How so? Because over time, I wouldn't say so much over time, um, what I will mention later on down the road is that this journey they took would help them uh, compile a report, a report that not only would be submitted to the state legislature of New York, but ultimately, but the goal was to get it sent to Congress. But we'll learn more about that here in a little bit. So let me, let me guys ask you all this question here. This journey that's going to be taken, is this going to, um, this isn't anything that's going to be similar to what European explorers did in the 16th and 17th centuries, no. The good news is that, is that the uh, journey itself is from within um, the state of New York alone, but it's going to have uh, challenges. And I will say this, the journey ranged from visiting multiple towns, towns like Utica, Rome, Schenectady, uh, Little Falls, just to name a few, to also recording, uh, making notes of wildlife, that is, what kind of wildlife is in the areas where the canal itself will be constructed, along with geological formations that have not been seen before. So it's more than just saying, okay, this is where we're going to build the canal and all that. We want to know, hey, what are the towns like? How, what are the populations of the towns? And I'm going to give a good example of a town that really impressed the commissioners. So, and here it is, a bonus question. What town located outside of present-day Syracuse were the commissioners greatly impressed by? Utica. Utica, in July of 1810, the commissioners had reported a population of about 1,650. There were 300 homes. That's a lot of homes. Of course, I don't suspect that the homes were all stacked up against each other like a traditional uh, suburban sprawling style uh, neighborhood that you would see uh, in today's time. I'm sure that the homes, you know, were spaced out. 
but they but there was no grand entrance into a neighborhood like perhaps we know in today's modern world you and even what's even more unique about Utica is that there are broad religious um, there are broad religious diversity groups that are comprised of Baptists, Episcopalians, and Presbyterians. And here's an even uh, better one. Utica is home to six taverns, 15 stores, two breweries, and three printing offices. And what really blows DeWitt Clinton away is that the townspeople have a choice of two newspapers. You know, in most towns, you're lucky if you get one newspaper. But to have a choice of two, now that is a huge step moving on up in the right direction. You know, reading the newspaper even in 1810, it's fair to say that the news has improved. And I say that because in colonial days time, by the time you received your newspaper, the news or the, the news events that you were reading about had already happened and they could have been at least two to three weeks old. By this point in time, with the much larger population and statehood having expanded from 13 to 17 states, I think it's fair to say that learning about the news might be more, um, we call it more uh, newer, that is maybe a few days old, but it's not probably not the same as it would have been in colonial times where it would have been two to three weeks um, old by the time you got the paper. Now, as for the taverns, what I find interesting, it's not so much that there are six taverns, but as we all know, taverns are a, a very, very essential um, place for um, people to lodge, especially when they're traveling from point A to point B. But would it be fair to say that taverns might become essential for when the time comes to actually build the Erie Canal? Absolutely. People have to lodge somewhere. People have to um, have a place to... Um, to um to stay i mean you can't just go live in a stranger's home but taverns will give those people a sense of um a sense of comfort or a sense of um i don't know if belonging's the right word but just a sense of um security in other words a, a temporary roof to have over their shoulders and then stores think about this you know stores have to provide people with goods and services and for all we know when um when this canal does get constructed, that that uh, stores, not just in Utica, but in other um, towns around uh, the area, that, around the uh, places that will be uh, greatly um, benefiting from the Erie Canal, will have to have shops set up to provide for essential uh, resources. Now, the commissioners came upon, um, what I find interesting on their journey is that they came upon vast quantities of salt deposits halfway between Albany and Buffalo being in present-day Syracuse. Apparently, the salt industry was very big in Syracuse, and it is fair to say that, um, that, um, that the commodity of salt itself will serve as an asset once the canal gets built. I mean, I would say any kind of good that can be transported along the Erie Canal will benefit um, big time. Salt will probably be one of them. What's interesting about August 4th of 1810, the commissioners arrived to the final destination or turnaround point being Buffalo and Lake Erie. Buffalo is the westernmost terminus in New York State. Now, to have traveled... I'm going to ask you guys this. How many days do you think it would have 
that it would have taken just to have traveled from Albany to Buffalo alone. The number is between 30 and 40. The answer is 32. I kid you not, folks, it took 32 days to travel the three, full 363 miles from Albany to Buffalo. So if you take 363, divide that into 32, that's about 11.3 or close to 12 miles of travel at best per day. And if you were traveling westward into what is now Buffalo, New York, what would have been your final destination if it wasn't Buffalo? Um, those traveling westward would have gone into Ohio via means of passing Buffalo. How so? Well, Ohio, you know, borders uh, northwest Pennsylvania. I mean, it does border, you know, Pittsburgh. But in terms of uh, proximity from, um, say, Erie, Pennsylvania, and um, Jamestown, New York, and Buffalo, the closest major city in Ohio is Cleveland. And um, my wife and I, when we were in Niagara Falls three years ago, we met a couple up at uh, Fort Niagara in Youngstown, and they were from Cleveland. And they said it took about three hours from Cleveland to uh, Niagara Falls. So, so if you ask me what's the closest major city from Buffalo being in Ohio, it's Cleveland. As for the number of days per 700 miles across New York State and back, it was a total of 53 days for which it took the commissioners from start to finish, um, vice versa. So 53 days, folks. That's about seven weeks and four days right there. That's uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of journeying, a lot of sightseeing. Well, I wouldn't call this leisure sightseeing. We're not talking a vacation, folks, here. We're, we're talking about actually physically foreseeing the future in front of our own eyes. Not just from a um, town perspective and what the towns themselves would offer, but the geological formations. We're talk, and, and I'll probably be discussing some on other podcasts about geological formations in terms of when the canal itself actually gets constructed. But we're, but we have to pay very careful attention to what we're seeing because, you know, it would be easy to say, well, this feature may not impact how the canal gets built, but you never know over time what can happen. And even the smallest um, miscalculation can have um, a disastrous uh, effect on whether or not um, a boat moving downstream or going uphill will have, um, will, um, move, um, or should I say, navigate freely along the water without any kind of, um, of uh, unforeseeable uh, tragic consequence. Well, our next uh, bonus uh, question is the following. Would, the submitting, would submitting findings per commissioner's study be an arduous task? Uh, yes. For starters, you know, we've got some factors to think about here. For starters, um, how would constructing a canal impact the people of New York State, along with the nation as a whole? Secondly, what kind of technology would be required for the project as a whole? And then the most important one is, how do you go about obtaining financial support long term? In other words, does the government uh, pay for part of the project? on the state level and does the federal government pay for part of the project on their end you know there are a lot of um unknown questions 
So what did Commissioner Peter Porter do in 1810 that was very powerful? Well, as I said earlier, he was a member of Congress, but he warned his fellow uh, congressional colleagues about what his constituents were facing, which, which was pretty dire. I mean, none of them were on the verge of dying, but many in western New York were um, struggling to be able to, um, pr to sustain a better way of life in terms of getting goods uh, transported instead of by just roads, but instead to various Atlantic ports, most notably like New York City or Philadelphia. But having a current state of bad transportation is holding back growth, especially in areas where people were looking to not only expand their business, but expand um, economic growth into markets that had not been reached, but perhaps establishing a new life. After all, immigrants are going to be the ones that are going to come and um, populate cities like Buffalo, become cities like Buffalo, uh, Rochester, and then all the way to, to Ohio being Cleveland. So if there's not enough support to, um, for uh, Mr. Peter Porter, then he's really uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place, which is very unfortunate. Now, the commission's final report would be released in March of 1811. For Governor Morris, his task was to explore um, the loan costs from private investors, not only in the United States, but abroad. Thomas Eddy and Robert Fulton would have to seek out engineers whom would design and supervise canal construction. So, to sum it all up, how to end this podcast episode... There's no doubt that um, that the men I mentioned tonight mentioned um, here just a short while ago were very, very um, what do you call it? Um, they were pioneers. They were um, they were very revolutionary with their thinking. They had reinvented how to go about um, go about achieving goals that um, had not been attained um, in years past to now standing a better um, chance for um, for a greater reality in the sense of a, a broad plan to actually revolutionize uh, transportation to where goods can move uh, further inland. However, there's still going to be some uphill uh, battles to face. And those uphill battles are going to mean uh, going before Congress, most notably, and because by 1810, you know, Jefferson's already out of office. His predecessor, being his vice president, being another Virginian, Mr. James Madison, is in the White House. And to make matters worse, um, it won't be long before the United States is back at war again. And for those of you who remember my podcast uh, from earlier on the book, uh, through the Steve Vogel's Through the Perilous Fight, uh, The Burning of Washington... For, from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner in the six weeks that saved the nation, America's going to be, um, in a few years after 1810, is going to be facing um, some very uh, dark times. And it involves England, and it has to do with economic um, independence. Not just so much economic independence, but independence on the high waters. You know, we already gained our, our independence uh, politically from England, but we're still facing problems on the high seas with the impressment. And, of course, England wasn't impacted by the embargo. 
but the bottom line is is that we're still not getting respect on the high seas. So we've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And um, to all of you, thank you for listening and, um, and uh, continue to do so. And if you have people out there who would like to uh, listen to podcasts, tell them to come to mine. Um, I will continue to make them as educational as I can. After all, that is my mission. And that is the best thing to do considering all that's going on in the world today. I don't know how most of us would want to have time to listen to information that's irrelevant. Yes, history is not pleasant. Yes, there are things about history that um, that occurred which probably should not have occurred. However, we can learn from it and, and do everything there is in our power to not make those same mistakes. But thank you again for listening, and I'll be back on the air again here soon. Take care.